spectacular as always. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 20, 21, yeah, sorry, (laughs) 21, I knew that, I did, Um, (laughs) Isaiah chapter 21, Um, and just as as a recap, Isaiah has been having these oracles against the nations, and last week we saw the oracle against Egypt, which kind of culminated in um, even greater oracle against all the nations. But now we're going to be getting back into specific nations, uh, specific peoples, um, and seeing, okay, why is God judging them, and um, what's happening with these different nations. Um, So we're going to go ahead and we'll bring up our maps for today. And today, actually, we're going to be talking about our dear friend, Babylon. Who loves Babylon? That was a trick question. (laughs) They were interesting, right? Anyway, so Babylon is going to be in in view today, which you can tell is far greater away than Egypt and Damascus and Tyre and Samaria that we've already dealt with. But Babylon does have a very interesting future with Israel and Judah, in particular Judah. Um, And you can see here, Babylon, this city is right here. um, And... We're going to get into a little bit about what they've been doing this whole time. Because as we know, I mean, Assyria is the, is the power right now. But eventually Babylon takes over. Um, so we have to remember that as world events unfold, there's a lot going on. Um, and if, I think there's one more thing. Um, the Negeb down here is going to be discussed. So when we talk about Negeb, that's, what, that's the area. It's actually kind of like a desert region. Um, and so that's kind of just, just so you know when... When the prophet describes it, this is what he's thinking of, the Negeb. Um, and that's everything for the maps for today. Alrighty. So, verses 1 through 4. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negeb sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Medea, all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pains have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror, horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. Chapter 21 begins a new set of oracles against the nations, which lasts until the end of chapter 22. Um, In this first oracle of the chapter, however, we see that this is dealing with the wilderness of the sea. There has been some debate as to what this means. Indeed, how can a wilderness have a sea? As such, scholars tend to know how this phrase was once similarly used for an area around the Persian Gulf. Um, And it was what we were talking about, that Babylon area. Um, What makes this so appealing is that there was an individual by the name of Merodach Baladin who led Babylonian resistances against Assyria from 722 to 710 BC and then again from 705 to 702 BC. So it makes sense that in that time frame, this individual was in this spot causing a lot of ruckus. So as we remember though, Babylon did send Hezekiah envoys in hopes of causing him to join in their rebellion against Assyria. 
It was likely Merodach Baladin who sent such envoys or envoys. Since we also know that the oracle is against Babylon, as Babylon is specifically spoken of in verse 9, it seems likely then that the prophet is purposefully using this phrase to show just how feeble Babylon is, despite Merodach Baladin's promise of success against Assyria, in the end it is like a wilderness of the sea. This then leads to the oracle itself in which it comes from the wilderness. We have no idea at this point what it is. It kind of makes it very figurative. As such, this phrase leads us to a sense of quickness, um, that it comes like a whirlwind of the Negev, or also evidence that whatever it is, it comes suddenly upon us. Oftentimes, we can think of the visions given to the prophets were easy for them to experience. But the truth is, these prophets were also humans. As such, when Isaiah describes the vision as stern, it reminds us that he's experiencing um, something which is harsh. What is so stern? Betrayal and destruction. That Elam and Medea are called upon is interesting. Elam and Medea were, at the, the time of Merodach Baladin, allied with Babylon against Assyria. Thus, the prophet could be speaking of them joining Babylon in an uprising, willing to fight alongside Babylon to end Assyria's reign. Hence, I will bring to an end all the sighing she has caused is to reflect this. The response from the prophet, however, is not a good one. The warfare which is in his vision is awful to witness. Isaiah is experiencing in his vision the destruction of those who are sinners. While it can often be that we look forward to the day of the Lord, many times it is seen as a dark day when judgment comes. As such, when the prophet sees the results of that day, it causes him incredible sorrow emotionally and even physically. It it affects his body, um, which is an important point in my head for another event. Um, The twilight could represent one of two things. The first is that the twilight was the time when visions were given to the prophets. As such, Isaiah would long for this since it meant that God was providing a vision. The alternative is that it simply means nighttime when normally there would be rest. In light of the judgment, however, no rest can be found. In either case, we see it affects um, of the vision on the prophet. When he wants this twilight to come so he has a vision, he doesn't want the vision. Or um, if, let's say, it's rest, he can't even get any rest because the vision is so dreadful, he can't, he can't even sleep. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing. Now we come to verse 5. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink, arise, O princes, oil the shield. Verse 5 is interesting, and this is why I'm kind of separating it in its details. Many will remember when Babylon fell to the Persians in approximately 536, and we remember how in Daniel 5, the king and leaders were feasting when the downfall occurred. Because of this verse, some believe that this is what is in view for their destruction. Now, this is entirely possible, especially in light of God's ability to grant such visions of the future. But it is also possible that this is still in reference to Merodach Baladin and his envoys. If his envoys come to Judah, there would be extravagance to encourage better relations. Indeed, remember how Hezekiah did in fact treat the Babylonian envoys by showing them all of his wealth. Thus, this may be a reflection of this kind of an envoy. They set up a meeting for their alliance with the purpose of going into battle. In either case, it leads to destruction, as we now see with the rest of the chapter. So verses 6 through 10. For thus 
the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him be, announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen, and pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen, and pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Israel, I announce to you. It is the Lord who now speaks. The word Lord here means sovereign. Indeed, he is sovereign over all the world, all the earth. As such, he is the one who sets a watchman to announce what the watchman will see. Because God is sovereign, the watchman is faithful and obedient to do as the Lord commands. He will not lie or speak of something else, other, um, but tell the truth of what it is that he's witnessing. Verse 7 then tells what the watchman is to look for. In particular, the watchman is looking for some kind of procession of riders, horsemen, donkeys, and camels. There is a vagueness about all of this. Is this a military procession? Is this a caravan? It seems the former is more likely a military procession of some kind. What kind, either going to or coming from war, will be seen? Ultimately, the watchman is to be diligent in what he observes. The watchman then responds. We are not told how long the watchman has been waiting. What we know for sure is his faithfulness. He stands day by day, night by night, awaiting that which he has been called to watch for. He is diligent in his duty to do what the Lord has commanded him. As time progresses, there is no news. He simply waits and waits. Then, suddenly, it's abruptly, the procession comes. Those that the Lord had called the watchman to wait for and to listen for has come. Immediately, he takes note and now understands what has occurred. Babylon has fallen. The great city, which was well known in ancient world, um, has been defeated. Ancient Babylon, scholars note, fell multiple times. To Assyria, it fell four times. This is how many times Babylon was in rebellion. From 710, 702, 689, and 648, it fell to the Assyrians. Finally, to Persia in 536, after it had gained power. If the Assyrian threat is in view, then it seems likely that this oracle is describing the fall which happened in 689. Um, Indeed, Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler, even claimed that he left the city with corpses, he smashed their gods and raised buildings and walls, and even sought to wash over the ruins with water and hoped to obliterate any memory of it. Um, They were pretty harsh back then. Verse 10 then describes the winnowed one. This is an agricultural understanding in which the grain would be threshed and, or trampled, and then a winnower would come and separate the grain from the chaff. It is likely that this is a reference to Judah as God's people who are constantly being battered by the world powers and the events unfolding around them. Still, Isaiah was faithful to proclaim what it is that he saw. He is, as always, warning the people of trusting in alliances with foreign nations instead of trusting in God. He has seen the fall of Babylon, and he proclaims this to the people as a warning. Do not put your trust nor your assurance in Babylon. Alrighty. 
So the main point of this oracle is to describe the situation with our friend Babylon. The vagueness of much of the oracle leads us to wonder when exactly this is all transpiring. Though it seems likely Isaiah has multiple understandings in view, in the immediate context, Babylon will still fall to Assyria for some time. If later, Babylon will eventually fall to Persia. Persia. Further, Babylon, as the archetype of immorality and idolatry, will fall to God himself in Revelation. So no matter what, Babylon's falling. Um, Ultimately, Babylon is not strong enough to sustain any alliance with Judah. Indeed, they truly are the wilderness of the sea. Thus, God calls a diligent watchman to proclaim the truth to his people. Babylon has fallen. Do not put your faith or your assurance in them. As we continue with the oracles against the nations, it has become a common theme for the judgment of God to be revealed against them. Indeed, we have repeatedly seen how the various nations were worthy of judgment because of their immorality, their idolatry, and their belief in self. Throughout it all, Isaiah is reminding God's people to not trust in humanity, even great nations, but to trust in God who is greater than any person or any nation. With this has come diligence on the part of Isaiah. Just last week, we saw how Isaiah stripped of his clothing in order to follow the word of the Lord. Isaiah has proven himself to be faithful to the word of God and the word that God has given to him. Even if that word is sometimes hard to understand, proclaim, or even witness in his vision, Isaiah has been diligent in his prophetic ministry. Now this leads to the watchman, which is described in the chapter today in my mind. When we consider the watchman, we can see a number of things we can learn to emulate. Indeed, there are three things to consider. The first is that the watchman is called by God. By being called by God, the watchman is an individual who is placed in his station for a purpose. What is that purpose? To glorify God. That is the reason. The purpose for the watchman. To do what they have been called to do. They did not invent the calling, but are faithful to it. When we consider the church, we can see that we are no different. We too are called to something, and that is to glorify God and what he has purposed us for. There are many different ways which God calls us. Some are called to be fathers, others are called to be mothers, some are called to be business owners, others are called to be employees, some are called to uh, work with what the world calls mundane things, others are called to the extraordinary according to the world. We're all given various gifts. We all have a particular purpose for our gifts. Ultimately, our purpose is not to glorify self, but to glorify the God who has given us our gifts and who has given us this which is our true purpose. Thus, we rejoice in what God has given to us, recognizing that without God, we would have no genuine purpose. Indeed, what is the purpose of life without God? If God does not exist, then at best, we define our purpose. But to what end? If in the end all things come to an end in death, if the universe itself will come to a natural conclusion of losing all of its available energy, becoming nothing more than a universe filled with black holes where there's no life, there's no heat, there's no energy remaining, then what does it matter? Indeed, it would appear whatever purpose we give ourselves is nothing more than a figment of our imaginations with no true significance in reality. If, however... God exists, and he gives us our purpose, then we know there is meaning to our lives. Not just to life itself, the breath and the heartbeat of life, but also to everything and everything we do. 
God gives a meaning and purpose to it. And he calls us to the meaning and purpose when he brings us into existence. As the church, this is especially true. For we know God exists and we know he has given us a purpose to be the body of Christ, being faithful in what he has called us to be. Thus, like the watchman, God has called us and we glorify him when we are obedient to what he has called us to. Now, this leads to the second point in that the watchman was diligent to the call. God called him to diligence. And we see how the watchman was diligent, keeping watch day and night, always prepared for what he was to watch for. The watchman kept up his service to the Lord in all diligence. We can and should be no less diligent in our own calls. As we belong to Christ in life and death and his resurrection, we must be diligent to remain faithful to the one whom we belong to. It can become easy for us to be distracted by the heat of the day or the cold of the night. It can be easy for us to be swayed by the wiles of temptation and sin. It can be easy for us to lose focus where we are called to be, being distracted from being who we are instead. But if we should remain diligent, if we should remain disciplined, then we will be able to stand our ground against the temptations and sins which present themselves. We will be able to recognize our desperate need of the strength of God within us. His Holy Spirit which revives and strengthens us on the long road of faith. To love God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And to remember that God desires not pieces of us, but all of who we are. Thus to discipline ourselves is part of being diligent. In our men's group, we have been going over a number of spiritual disciplines, including prayer, scripture intake, worship um, service, fasting, and studying, just to name a few. In the course of our discussions, you know what the one thing we've all agreed on? We need to be better disciplined. Every single one of us has agreed to this. We each have recognized our need for better diligence in being faithful to God here and now. Thus, the watchman is a reminder of how to do that. To hone ourselves, to be prepared and in and out of season. To remember that to love God with all of who we are requires us to be on guard, ever watchful, ever aware of what God is doing and what his will is. Finally, when we consider what the watchman does, that's the third point. He faithfully proclaims what it is that has occurred. The watchman is not worried about what others will think of him, nor what will occur should he proclaim it. Instead, he is faithful to proclaim regardless of the repercussions. As Christians, we too have, been, have seen a procession. The difference is it is a procession of a man carrying a cross to the hill outside of Jerusalem, of him being nailed to that cross, of his death on that cross. Then, when all the world was in darkness, his glorious rising from death to life. The procession we proclaim is one of both life and death. Death is undone in the life of Christ. This is the message we proclaim, that by faith we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we believe in him, we seek obedience to him, and living in repentance from sin. We recognize our desperate need for Christ because we are guilty of our sins, and in his death has come redemption for those who believe. The message cannot be changed. There are many today who would like to change it. They would like it to be less bloody. They would like it to be less judgmental. They would like us to be innocent babes. But the truth is we are guilty. And the death of Christ is the evidence of our guilt. 
For it is only in his death that redemption from our guilt comes. That God himself must take the punishment for our sins is both a wonderful act of grace and love, but also a reminder of how deeply wicked we are and deserving of judgment ourselves. If we are to be followers of God, we cannot sugarcoat the truth of the message. We must proclaim it in full. We must be willing to call Jesus the Christ, not a Christ. We must be willing to stand against taunts, ridicule, and even hatred for what we proclaim. We are able to withstand the onslaught because we know Jesus, for he is with us now and is with us forever. We have nothing to fear because he who conquered is with us even now. The truth, that is what we proclaim. The truth of Christ, the truth of God, the truth about humanity. We are to be diligent in our watchfulness of truth and to proclaim the truth to the world around us. Because the truth is continually skewed by our culture where everything around us is constantly in flux, where people are willing to proclaim what is false and call it true, it is no wonder why truth itself is constantly questioned. It is why it is so imperative for us to understand the necessity of our place in the world to be truth seekers and truth speakers. Not being distracted by the lies, but willing to be led by God's will to proclaim the truth in every circumstance, whether it be with the media, politics, religion, etc., Because we know the truth of God. We know he exists. And he has spoken his word. And his word has become flesh. We are capable of knowing truth around us in all areas of our lives as well. Thus, be encouraged to be like the watchman. To recognize that you are called to a purpose. To recognize that you are called to be diligent. To recognize that you are to be faithful to the truth. Just as the watchman was, so we are as well. Now, I think that all this leads us to the gospel in a very interesting way. Um, And the truth is, is that no matter what, when we start with the gospel, we have to start with where we began, which is from God. God is the first cause of all the universe. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen because it needed to happen by its own nature. It happened because something started it. And that's God. God started this universe. He's the first cause of all the universe. And of all the things that God created, all the wonderful things, we look up and we see the stars at night and we consider all the nature around us and it's really beautiful when you think about it and it's really good even. And then we look around and we see all these things. We look at our own bodies. We wonder how amazing God is for creating such people as us. And then we realize what God has told us from the beginning. You are created in my image, he says. I've created you in my image. In humanity, despite all the beauties of the world around us, it's you and I which God has decided to place above all other things he created to bear his image. And this is a wonderful thing. And it's something we should rejoice in. We rejoice in each other's accomplishments. We rejoice in what humanity can create. And what we can do, we can love. But at the same time, we recognize something has happened. This world is not as it should be. In this world, there is darkness. There is sin. There's lies. There's pain. There's murder. There's death. There's destruction. All around us. All the time. And as our world continues to become more informed, we see it more and more. The darkness of our world. The pain of our world. 
And we experience it personally when our loved ones pass or when they get sick. And we mourn because everything is so wicked. And it's almost as if nothing could ever make sense. It's almost as if we could get to a place where how could God ever bring anything good out of any of this nonsense? And we mourn over it all and we should mourn because of injustice and sorrow. And that's what we see in regards to this chapter. Death upon death, chapter upon chapter. We see these people who continue to rely on self. And we see where self leads. Death. Is there any hope for humanity when we really consider it all? I think so. In fact, I know so. Because you notice in this chapter, Isaiah calls the people of Judah, the winnowed ones. What does that mean? There's still some who exist who are faithful. It's not all chaff. There's still seeds. There's still grain. There's still good. Ultimately, that's what we find in redemption in regards to Jesus Christ. Through his life, death, and resurrection... In time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption. Though we are winnowed, though it hurts sometimes, Christ himself suffered because of our sins. But from the greatest act of human sinfulness comes our redemption. When we put Jesus Christ on the cross, you think we could have done anything worse at that moment? No. That was the worst thing we could have done. The innocent God being killed by the sinful man. And yet from that comes redemption. If you think that this world is so dark and so painful and that there's no good in it, I'll tell you, God can turn anything for good. Even our pain, our struggles, and our sorrows, he can turn it for good. I know it because I've seen what he's already done in Jesus. And it's from that redemption That we are able to go out into the world and speak the truth to the world because we know the truth. And ultimately, for those who believe, there's life eternal in peace with our God. When we will have new bodies and a new heaven and earth and we are going to rejoice over what God has done. And we're going to be so filled with love and glory over him and under him and around him that it will all be, it all makes sense now. Doesn't make sense to us here, perhaps, but it will. For those who don't believe, though, there is judgment with the Babylonians, just as there was. There's judgment still. And so we need to be faithful to proclaim faith in Christ is the only way to salvation. Faith in Christ is the only way to life. It's the only way to glory. It is the truth. Let us go out and proclaim it. Let us be faithful watchmen to what God has called us to be. We are caretakers for a glorious thing, the truth. Let us be bold to proclaim it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your prophets as they continue to point us not to ourselves and not to all of the destruction we see, but they continue to point us to you because you alone are worthy. You alone are so great. You alone are so good. 
And so, Lord, let us be reminded not to trust in the Babylons of our time. Let us not trust in the things that would lead us away from you. Let's just grab hold of you. You have made yourself available to us. You have done it through your son, Jesus Christ. All it requires is faith. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.